Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast. In this podcast, we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we do tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors too. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Alan Collins and I'm joined today by my colleague Sam Barker. Hello. And we have company today. We have the Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of New South Wales, Michael Salter. Welcome. Hello. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And today we are going to be talking about false memory syndrome or so-called false memory syndrome and memory issues in child sexual abuse. And we thought this would be an interesting subject because, uh, Michael, we understand that you've done quite a lot of work and research in this area. Yeah, it's quite an important discussion to to be had both historically in terms of some of the struggles over the last 25 years to prosecute child sexual abuse. Um, But I think the debate over false memories tells us a lot about where we are at today in terms of how we support victims and, and a pathway forward for them. So what is your background? Why have you got this interest in this particular subject? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I'm a, I'm a criminologist by trade. I came to the study and practice of criminology in my, my mid-20s. And at that point, I'd spent um, around seven years supporting a friend through a pretty complex child abuse investigation. She was a victim of a, a pedophiling as a kid and uh, they'd manufactured child abuse material and all sorts of terrible things. She was part of a group of, of women who were alleging abuse by, by this group. So I sort of saw it initially at the front lines just through what, what she was going through, and it became apparent just how extensive the gaps were in the police response, the mental health response, uh, and also how unprepared state agencies were when they were faced with the complexity of child sexual exploitation. So that's really what what piqued my interest and uh, prompted me to go back to school and get a PhD, and here I am. Excellent. So you really saw it at the raw end, um, so to speak, as Sam and I do. And what we find is, in our own experience, that the vast majority of survivors, it's apparent that they know what they're talking about. And yet we have to address frequently this suggestion that survivors don't know what they're talking about, that they've either made it up or they've got overactive imaginations, whatever, which I suggest is the sort of background to this concept of false memory. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the extraordinary thing for us when we were, you know, dealing with this case, and I was, when it broke open, I was in my late teens. So, you know, I was, I was barely an adult myself. But, you know, at, at the time she was reporting current abuse because she was still being threatened by, by the group. And yet, even when we were reporting this to police, they were framing it in terms of false memories and recovered memories. And uh, she wasn't reporting past events. She was reporting current events. It's true. Yeah. It just demonstrated just how this idea of false memories had become this all-encompassing way of trivialising any complaint of sexual abuse that authorities weren't comfortable with. Do you think it's partly because most people, vast majority of people, just can't contemplate that these terrible things happen? 
and they're just looking for an easy way out, an easy explanation? I think that's absolutely right. And something I often have to say to people is, you know, I don't want any of this to be true either. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it would be great if this was all false memories. I could retire. <laughs> but that's just not the evidence that's presented to us. And something that's changed a lot over the last 20 years, it, uh, unfortunately, it, it has been the advent of the internet. It has been the proliferation of images of child abuse. And so what we now have is undeniable digital evidence that pedophiles network with one another and that they engage in the very, very serious and sadistic abuse of children. Um, and that's really what's turned the corner on this issue and, and really prompted uh, government and, and police to start taking survivors more seriously when it comes to allegations of quite severe abuse. What I found really interesting in your, your article, Michael, on, um, sorry, your paper on this, was kind of going back through the history and the development of false memory syndrome and how it, you know, its advent in the United States and how it became such a, you know, a movement there popularized in the media. And the, this idea of restructuring narratives to kind of fit a common conception of what people, of how people want to view the world, you know, not wanting to see people as necessarily evil or these kind of things happening. I was wondering if you could speak a tiny bit more about the, the background and how this false memory syndrome, uh, you know, came to light and and indeed became so prevalent over the years. Yeah, sure, Ken. Um, so the, the 1980s was a period of unprecedented public awareness of child abuse, and we saw an exponential increase in reports of child abuse to child protection authorities. We saw a flood of, of abuse prosecutions, really for the first time in, in history, and both children and adults reporting having experienced child abuse. By the early 90s, there was significant pressure in the United States on a range of, of jurisdictions to reform legislation to enable adult survivors of sexual abuse to pursue criminal charges or damages through civil action. And so this was quite a successful movement. Um, majority of states uh, changed their laws so that, so that adults could report and a sexual abuse that occurred 20 or 30 years ago. The false memory syndrome emerged at this period of time because essentially people who were accused of sexual abuse by adults, these were historical complaints, they needed a credible defence in court. And so there was a, a range of, of academics, psychology academics, who were willing to testify in court. And so a lobby group formed in the United States in 1992, made up of, of parents mainly who'd been accused of abuse, and also these expert academic advocates and then the movement spread very, very quickly throughout the United States and very quickly was in the present and active in the UK, Australia and, and other countries. Have you seen um, in, in criminal trials or indeed trials you've followed in Australia, have you seen this kind of defence be used over you know, the past, in more recent times? Yeah, again, interesting question. Um, in the United States, testimony around false memories has been quite a lucrative sort of cottage industry for expert defence witnesses. Hmm. We have examples of academics making literally millions of dollars in court testifying for men accused of sexual abuse. In Australia, we have a higher sort of standard of evidence for expert testimony. Hmm. And so one of the areas of evidence that we don't have experts testify in is eyewitness evidence. Hmm. So what it's meant is that we haven't had a lot of open activism around false memory syndrome What's happened instead is that the logic of false memories 
has seeped into the judicial logic, into the logic of judges and uh, and into the logic of, of juries. And we certainly have had cases here in Australia, child sexual abuse cases, where the logic of false memories has been applied very successfully in defence and accepted uh, by judges. We also, in the late 90s, saw the emergence, well, we, we saw Aboriginal Australians attempting to... Uh, press civil damages against the Australian state for their forced removal from their families yep. and their abuse in, in institutions. And interestingly, there was some key civil cases around the turn of the millennia where the judge in, in that case essentially advocated a false memory argument that these Australian Aboriginals may have confabulated their memories of abuse in institutions because they were in a milieu that encouraged them to fantasise about abuse. So how does that fit with sort of general human nature? Because none of us have the perfect memory, and a psychiatrist will go and say in court, well, basically, no one's got the perfect memory, and there's a tendency in, in us all to, if we're not careful, to fill in gaps in the memory to try and make sense of things. So how does that, that's not quite the same as false memory, but it's a sort of suggestive of false memory, filling in gaps in the memory, trying to make sense of things that you can't remember. You've just got certain stage posts and you try and link up between the various bits that you can remember. Yeah, so, you know, child abuse is not a special category of memory. It's no more or less likely to be accurate than any other kind of memory. What makes child abuse memories a little tricky is of course the, the the fear the confusion they are traumatic and this can impact memory recall primarily because kids don't want to think about it they can avoid thinking about it if it's quite a, a, a terrorizing memory they may dissociate the memory so you know when we're listening to survivors we always need to be um, aware of the process by which they put their story together. But I'm sure, you know, as, as legal professionals, you're familiar with sitting down with someone and talking to them about how they came to understand what happened to them. You know, and for, for, for the majority of survivors, it's a fairly straightforward process of, of, of memory in the same way that most people remember. For others, there is a little bit of detective work involved because there may, uh, the abuse may have started quite young before their memories began. There may have been the use of sedatives or drugs. If there was a lot of fear and terror involved in the abuse, or if the abuse was committed by someone such, a, such as a parent, because this uh, directly impacts memory and it directly impacts mental health, again, that is a process that, that, that needs to, be, to, to, to go through. But it's not especially mysterious for a third party to do, to do some basic due diligence and and to, to, to look at how someone has formed their understanding and, and where the, there is corroboration. This seems to tie in with the research commissioned by the Royal Commission because I think that identified a lot of misconceptions and that I think one of the misconceptions was that uh, a survivor may provide inconsistencies in their account, but the inconsistencies are not necessarily suggestive that their memory is at fault when it comes to the, you know, the real issue. 
was this person actually sexually abused? If there's some inconsistencies, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't know what they're talking about. On the contrary. Well, the, you know, the, the fact is, is that we are asking an, an we are asking an adult to make sense out of something terrible that happened to them as a child, and when they were a child, they did not have the capacity to understand what was going on because what was happening was very much an adult thing. It was driven by adult prerogatives, by adult desires. Um, the child could not possibly comprehend that. And so we're asking an adult to really, you know, do a lot of mental work also because they have to process a lot of the fear and the emotion um, around the abuse. One of the challenges that we do have is that the more serious the abuse is, the more severe it is, the more extreme it is, the more of an impact it has on the survivor's memory and, and recall and narrative. And also it's quite destructive to, to their mental health. And so when we're dealing with someone who, for example, might, may have been subject to child sexual exploitation, there might have been multiple perpetrators, images might have been made, threats might have been made. You know, if we're dealing with that person in their 20s or 30s or 40s, that's very likely to be someone with significant mental health issues, a history of self-harm, you know, a, a history of, of substance abuse. And we need to understand those as symptoms of trauma and to situate their, their recollections in that context. Mm. Of course, yes, that poses challenges in a criminal justice context, but we, we owe it to survivors and we owe it to kids today to have a very clear picture about the, the full effects of child sexual abuse. So do you think this so-called syndrome, false memory syndrome, is it really on its way out or do you think it will bubble up again in some other way? There, there's certainly been, I think, a move in the courts internationally towards a much better understanding of trauma and memory. False memory syndrome and evidence around false memories has faced quite significant challenges in the United States in being accepted into, into court. And we've seen expert witnesses who, who'd previously, you know, had a very successful court career really struggling to be accepted to, uh, uh, to you know, in, into a range of, of, of cases. It, nonetheless, you know, false memory syndrome and this concept, it, it has left this residue of disbelief. And one of the, the serious issues that we face is, is in the mass media, that we have a generation of journalists who really do believe that recovered memories of, of abuse are more likely to be false or are less likely to be accurate than other memories. And, you know, that I think when we look in the UK around some of its uh, some of the reporting in the UK on allegations of child abuse over the last five years, we've seen clear evidence of journalists who sincerely believe in false memory syndrome. Whether they call it that or not, the logic is there in their reporting. Is this, is, is this the same, correct me if I'm wrong here, Michael, but false, false memory syndrome and just say in a, a criminal prosecution involving an individual victim and a criminal prosecution involving a number of victims where there's the suggestion that there's been some sort of confabulation due to this cross-pollination of memories and and, and accounts and, and descriptions of, of abuse. I know that that's something that still pops up in criminal trials and indeed criminal defence. Is that is that in itself a, a form of false memory syndrome or is that more kind of, I don't know if to use, I, I don't know the technical words like transferred memory or things like that? Yes, con con contamination, something like this. Yeah. So really sort of classic false memory syndrome, the allegation is actually primarily aimed at therapists. So if, if a survivor has gone into therapy and then emerged from therapy making allegations of child abuse, the suggestion has been that the therapist 
uh, in, uh, literally implanted the memory oh, okay, um, into yeah. the abuse survivor that there's been a, a process in therapy that has led to the confabulation of, of abuse memories. Now, you know, I do a lot of work with trauma therapists and I, I sit on the board of directors of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. So, you know, our, our client group is actually the most traumatized and dissociated group. Now, frankly, if therapists could implant memories of abuse in this group, they uh, sorry, if they could implant memories in this group, they would. They would implant memories of happy childhoods in which their parents loved them. Exactly. If it was yeah. possible to, to do this, we would do it all the time because yeah. it would be so freeing and, and therapeutic. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to convince people of, of something that happened in childhood that, that did not happen. But yes, there's, there's been a broader sense of memory as being quite porous and vulnerable to contamination. It is actually something that we do have to think about in a clinical setting, for example, where, you know, there may be a lot of sexual abuse survivors in an inpatient ward. And, you know, we, when, when people are very unwell and very needy, we do need to be very respectful of, of people's narratives uh, and avoid too much sharing of personal narrative, mm. simply because people may, at, at particular times in their lives, be vulnerable to some kind of suggestion. And I think we've, we've in mental health care, become much better at managing those sorts of nuances over the last 30 years. But the proposition that people are emerging with a, a you know, a wholly confabulated set of abuse memories alongside, you know, very convincing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, that's just not, not, not realistic. Thank you, Michael. Um, I think we could carry on talking about these issues a lot more, but we better wrap it up now. Uh, so thank you, Michael, and thank you, podcast listeners. And thank you, Sam, and look forward to our next podcast. Thanks all. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you would like to speak to Alan or I about something you have heard this week, or even if you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please do get in touch at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk. 